Now, I wonder, can there be anyone who actually enjoys the public conversations we're having these days about the state of international relations, specifically that around the US and China, and by extension, our own related involvement? Yes, we must articulate possible threats emerging over the next generation, as occurred in our Defence Force review out last week. But increasingly high emotion accompanies talk of inherent hostilities between the two big powers. Even that terrible word inevitability is now used by quite a few commentators regarding the possibility of war. Now, for many of us, and I read the text line, it's deeply worrying. And remember, conversations here are much less strident than those in the US by all accounts. Well, one of the best-followed New York Times columnists returned to China earlier this month after several years away due to COVID and other reasons to specifically ask and answer the question that had been nagging at him for a while, what are America and China fighting about? I'll let him outline the answers he arrived at. Tom Friedman, welcome back to RN. Geraldine, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Did you come to a clear answer on this trip? You know, I... I Maybe it didn't come to a, a crystal clear answer, but I came to a much better understanding of what we're fighting about. And let me let me try to describe it from a, several different dimensions. I think the first dimension has to do with the fact that the years 1979 to, nine, to 2019 were an epoch in U.S.-China relations. And I call it the epoch of unconscious integration. Um, if you want to start a company there as an American, you could. If you want to send your kid to school there, you could. If you want to have a Chinese supply chain, you could. And if you're a Chinese entrepreneur, you wanted to be listed on the NASDAQ, send your kid to Harvard, you could. It was kind of unconscious integration. And over those 40 years, the U.S. and China really became their own one country, two systems. Uh, it wasn't just China and Hong Kong. We became, in some ways, deeply integrated. And what, what basically, I think the stage we're in right now, Geraldine, is that... Um, that, that four-decade period that provided a lot of prosperity around the world, a lot of global stability, there was no superpower conflict, it's really come to an end. And the phase we're in right now is redefining what will come next. And I would just say one thing about it, which again, this is something I really came to grasp on this trip, is that China and America historically have never had a rival like the other. That is, America has had a peer military rival in Nazi Germany. That was also a pure economic rival, but we weren't integrated economically. The Soviet Union was a pure military rival of the United States, um, but it was not an economic rival and we weren't integrated. China historically either had vassals around it, which it completely dominated, uh, or it was being savaged by Western powers. But it too has never had to deal with a peer economic rival military rival with which it's integrated. And the phase we're in right now is these two giant countries who are looking at each other through a peephole, basically, are trying to figure out the new phase in their relationship. And you say the irony is there's much in common too. This was your uh, phrase. I can't think of any major nation after the US with more of a Protestant work ethic and naturally capitalist population than China. Yeah, you know, one of the things that always strikes me, because I blessedly in my job as the foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times, I get, get to travel a lot. And whenever I'm in Shanghai or Beijing, you know, and, and you see the giant buildings there. And one thing I try to explain to Americans who've never been to China is that 
you know, Beijing and Shanghai each have 50 buildings that are so big. If just one of them were in Washington, D.C., it would be on the tourist bus route, okay? And the thing that I also then remind myself is this isn't Dubai, not to knock Dubai, but in the sense that this wasn't from oil. This was from hard work and savings. You know, Chinese are fond of telling you, we still remember how many pants we had to sell to buy our first Boeing. And so there, there is a weight to this place that, forget the politics for a second, just the sheer weight of what has been developed. 900 high-speed rail lines. In America, we have uh, 15, you know, and it's barely high-speed. It's, it's, I think, always really important to keep that in mind. Hmm. Neither of us have had a, a rival like the other before. But your main conclusion was interesting, Tom, and more than the Thucydides trap answer, which we've had a fair bit of here in Australia, about existing yes. powers and rising powers. Your answer went to a question of trust and the absence of it. Now, can you develop this idea, please? Sure. Well, basically, the point I tried to make is if you think of that four-decade period, 1979 to 2019, um, for 30 of those 40 years, roughly, um, uh, China sold us what I call shallow goods. Goods we wore on our shoulders, uh, shoes we wore on our feet, socks we wore on our ankles, and solar panels we put on our roofs. They sold us what I call shallow goods. We sold them deep goods, uh, software and hardware, and they had to buy our deep goods because they couldn't make deep goods, you know. And that was all sort of fine and good. And then about uh, eight years ago, knock on the door here in America, we go open the door, and there's a salesman there from China. And he says, hi, <clears throat> my name's Mr. Huawei, and I sell 5G. And by the way, I make 5G better than any company you have in America. And I'd like to sell you my 5G. And we basically in America said to him, oh, Mr. Huawei, we forgot to tell you, when you just sold us shallow goods, we didn't care whether you were authoritarian, libertarian, or vegetarian. But if you want to sell us your deep goods, goods that are going to chatbot in my bedroom, into the telecommunications of every urban infrastructure here, we don't have enough trust to buy your deep goods. And this is why suddenly trust became so much more important in the relationship. And then there was another reason, because basically as we moved into a world where everything becomes digital, that every device, your toaster, your refrigerator, your car, uh, is basically run on microchips that are connected. When everything is run on microchips and connected, there's about five lines of code that differentiate between an autonomous car and an autonomous weapon. And everything becomes dual use. That's sort of the TikTok dilemma now. You know, is my kid who's watching TikTok to learn dance moves, uh, is China somehow tracking him, you know, infiltrating his mind? I don't think so. I'm, I actually don't have a kid, but, but I'm saying that's a question being asked in America. And so when everything went deep and everything became dual use, when that happens, suddenly trust really matters. If my toaster is made in China and it's digital and online, do the Chinese know I like my bagels dark brown? And, uh, now, that's crazy, you know, but that's what, that's what the issue is. Sure. And you went on to have the second, which was a very tangible explanation of where Taiwan has surged ahead of the mainland just over the straits, in particular the, the firm TCMS that makes so much of the world's most advanced logic chips. What does it do so right in terms of trust that China just can't so far really sort of um, materialise? it, I suppose, this notion of yours? Yeah, a Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, TSMC, basically is the greatest chip company uh, maker in the world. They make 
basically 90% of the logic chips that drive sort of AI right now in the most advanced computing. Uh, for America, we, we get from TSMC. Now, this is a really interesting kind of lab test. So there's this barren rock in a typhoon-laden sea called Taiwan, and they have the greatest chip-making company in the world. 22 and a half million people live there of Chinese uh, origin. Across the straits um, is mainland China, 1.3 billion people, same ethnicity, speak the basically the same language, share the same history, and they can't make chips anywhere near as well as the people on the barren rock in the typhoon laden sea called Taiwan. Uh, why is that? It's because TSMC's business model is about trust in two ways. First of all, what happens when the physics of making uh, microchips gets so intense, that is, you know, I often when to explain this to people, I pluck a hair from my head and I tell people this hair is 80,000 nanometers roughly. TSMC is now making chips at the three nanometer scale. The physics of that is so hard that no one country can actually produce all the tools. So you need the best lenses of Zeiss lenses from Germany. You need the best lithography from Holland. You need the best specialized gases from Japan. You need the best materials, you know, from applied material. You need the best design tools, etc. So the global supply chain that TSMC pulls together is so intense and deeply embedded, a thousand companies basically, to make these precise chips that the only way you can do that is if everybody trusts the other because they're deeply embedded in, in each other's company. And that's why China has never been able to basically make chips at the degree that TSMC does. And the other reason is basically TSMC is a foundry. So Apple and, and Qualcomm uh, you know, and, and all these different companies give them their designs. And TSMC says, has this bargain with every one of these companies. We will take your designs and we promise you two things. One is we will never compete with the chips you're designing. And number two, we will never tell Apple what uh, NVIDIA or Qualcomm are doing. And so yeah. this whole thing is built on trust. And that's why people sometimes say, Geraldine, that you know, China just wants to invade Taiwan to get TSMC. The minute China would put his hand on TSMC forcefully, it would be worth zero. It's an extraordinary reminder, I must say, which I've never fully understood about all of those different companies using that one company, TSMC, and as you say, trusting that there isn't going to be industrial espionage um, happening, you know, right. anytime soon. Um, therefore... You've sketched this. What's your judgment, having been there in China again? Can we avoid hostilities? Like he's, you've put this down. I wonder what the response was to your article, by the way. How can we change the language around this so that we do move beyond these sort of jousting and trading of hostilities? It's going to be very difficult. Um, you know, um, I got pretty positive feedback all around from uh, my own capital, Washington, D.C., where I live, and people here, and also um, from China and, and Chinese experts who, who I think uh, people felt it was a, a, a balanced look at, at the situation, which I was trying to do as best I could. You know, the, the problem we have right now is that, um, and this is in some ways a product of the pre previous administration, but during the previous administration, there was a lot of loose talk in Washington. I'm talking about the Trump administration that we should take down the Chinese Communist Party. You know, and that's what that should be our objective. Well, that's hurt over there. And the leadership, you know, there says oh, we, we actually kind of like our party. 
uh, and we may not be perfect, but we've we've uh, we feel we've built a lot of things here that have raised living standards for a lot of people and brought a lot of people out of poverty. At the same time, what we say from from here, and this was one of the biggest points in my in my piece, is that China made a U-turn. I mean, you know, basically, China today, Geraldine, is so much more open than it was 40 years ago and so much more closed than it was 10 years ago. Is that what you found? Yes. And that's really obvious, I think, to everyone. It's just so much more closed. What, in terms of who and, you could um, speak to, where you could go, that yeah, sort of thing? Yeah. And how people feel about speaking to you, you know, the freedom they feel. I mean, I China's my second largest book market. I've sold over 2 million copies of The World is Flat there. I used to do bookstore talks there. I did university talks. You really can't do that anymore. So it, it's it, China turned inward right when trust became more important than ever. There was a reversal. We kind of thought they were on a path to not perfect, but they were getting more and more open, a little more transparent, a little more rule of law. There were two steps forward, one step back, but it felt like they were coming our way. And then that stopped. And trust is so important. One of my teachers and friend, Dove Seidman, likes to say, trust is the only legal performance enhancing drug. Trust is the only legal performance enhancing drug. And when it's in the room, you can do amazing stuff. But when it's not in the room, especially between two big powers, these two gorillas sitting on a couch together, looking at each other through a pinhole. When you lose that trust, wow, that becomes a real problem. Well, I mean, uh, you say, I believe we're doomed to compete with each other, doomed to cooperate with each other, doomed to find some way to balance the two. Otherwise, we're going to both have a very bad 21st century. And people like Ray Dalio, the big international investor, was pretty stark this week saying, look, they're not even talking to each other. And I might add, it would appear that the Chinese won't pick up the phone at the moment. (laughs) The Americans might be saying very loud things, but the Chinese won't pick up the phone for all sorts of reasons they know about. So where do we go from here? Um, It's a question I'm asking both sides. Hey, China, you won't pick up the phone? Where where do you think that's going to go? You know, uh, America, we're, you know, basically inserting uh, that we are going to keep them 10 years behind technologically. Where do you think that's going to go? I, uh, you know, I try to see both sides in this, but I really believe, uh, I believe this more strongly than ever, that the biggest divide in the world we're going into, Geraldine, is no longer east, west, north, south, communist capitalist. It's going to be between the world of order and the world of disorder. That's going to be the big divide in the world. Look at Sudan today. Look at Libya. Look at Lebanon. Look at Syria. Look at Afghanistan. Look at Pakistan. Who's going to stabilize these countries? Who's going to stabilize the world of order? I believe that's going to be the biggest geopolitical challenge. And it's going to come down to the, the, the world of order can only, sta- can only stabilize the world of disorder. We're going to need Australia, Japan, Korea, uh, China, uh, the United States. I wish Russia. Not anymore. They're now in probably heading for the world of disorder themselves. I think the world could get really, really disorderly. And um, we are going to need each other as we go along. And so we can hit each other with our purses all we want. We can slap each other, throw cold water on each other. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to find a way to work this out. And watch and, our language, um, maybe. Uh, in both ways, you know, exactly. You know, that um, because... We can. We live in a world now, Geraldine, where we can. We can. We can hear each other whisper. We can hear each other whisper. 
And so when we say crazy stuff in some of our committees here in Congress and they have some wolf warrior go off in Paris and say some outlandish stuff, it goes around the world in a second. Mm -hmm. But I, I really do believe we have no choice but to figure out how to draw red lines where necessary, build bridges with where, where, wherever possible. Otherwise, we are both going to have a really bad 21st century. The idea that America can thrive while China is destabilized. You know, I actually don't like to use the term China. I much prefer, when I'm talking to Americans, I much prefer one-sixth of humanity who speak dialects of Chinese. <laughs> let's, talk about the, let's talk about the real scale of this, folks. We're talking about one out of six people on the planet. Now, everything being equal, I'd rather actually not be at war with one out of six people on the planet. Uh, and for China, the same thing. You, you don't want to be at war with the United States of America. And if you think that we're just yesterday's you know, um, bread, um, some stale old you know, dying, fading power, one of the things I discovered when I was in China Boy, there were a lot of Chinese who said, chat GPT, that AI thing. Now, that's really cool. We thought, we thought you guys were belly up. Where did that come from? Right. Tom Friedman, great to chat. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, Geraldine. Call anytime. And we just might. Tom Friedman, New York Times uh, op-ed columnist, uh, and one of his latest uh, articles, more than a column that we referenced, and I really commend it to you, very fair-minded, I thought, America, China and a Crisis of Trust, published by on April the 14th, and of course his other great books, or, you know, well-known books, The World is Flat and The Lexus and the Orange Tree. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.